This episode deals with conversations around the Canadian residential school system. There is the occasional use of adult language. I was born on the land in 1957. Lived on the land till I was nine years old. In my nine years, I saw the old way of life, sleeping side by side with my brothers and sisters' parents, going out in my caribou jumpsuit, thinking that we are the only people on earth. That's what I thought. <laughs> but then I started saying planes, and planes started to land in our little camp. We used to be so scared. Welcome to Cinema Reignited, a podcast by the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, powered by Telephone Canada. I'm Samah Ali, your host, and in each episode of this series, we will explore a different film that has recently been digitized as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited Initiative, led by Telefilm Canada and in partnership with Hot Docs, the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television, the Festival du Nouveau Cinéma, and the Toronto International Film Festival. By taking you on a journey through time when each film was made and how the film relates to broader historical and societal themes, Cinema Reignited will help you rediscover the legacy of Canadian film and ensure that the stories of our past are not lost to future audiences. We're taking a look at these seminal Canadian films through a modern day lens, so we can gain insights into the shaping of our country's identity and culture. In this episode, we're exploring from a Nook point of view, the 1985 documentary short by Zacharias Canuck. In 1966, at nine years old, Zacharias Canuck was no longer able to live on the land with his family, the only way of life he'd known. Like many other Inuit and Indigenous children, he and his siblings were required to go to school in larger communities like Igloolik, in the territory of Nunavut. The community was a place of transition, where the old ways of Inuit life were being replaced by the culture and traditions introduced by a Christian religion and the Canadian government. Zacharias Canuck's 1985 documentary, From a Nook Point of View, tells the story of Igloolik, its people, and the changing ways of Inuit life. The film broke barriers by becoming the first ever Inuit or Indigenous film to receive a Canada Council for the Arts grant. Narrated by an Inuit elder in the Inuktitut language, it was made for an Inuit audience. Noteworthy, because until this point, the films and television programs available to communities like Igloolik were made by outsiders. The Inuit people were not seeing their own stories on the screen. Like many of the children his age in the late 1960s, Canuck's first exposure to movies captured his imagination. Using his artistic talent for carving, he'd sell his artworks for admission to the latest movie being shown at the small community hall. Eventually, his carvings would allow him to purchase his first camera in 1981. Filmmaking would become his opportunity to create a record for his people's history, a modern extension of the oral tradition that was an essential part of Inuit culture. From a Nook point of view was Canuck's first film, the start of what would become one of the most award-winning film careers in Canadian history. In 1990, 
Canuck co-founded the Asuma Collective, established to produce and distribute independent Inuit language films and media art from an Inuit point of view. Asuma's feature-length film, Adenarjuat, The Fast Runner, won a camera d'or at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival, the first and only Canadian film to receive the prestigious award to date. To learn more about the origins of his filmmaking, I was honored to speak to Zacharias Canuck about the creation of From a Nook Point of View, from his home in Iglulik. Zacharias, thank you for joining us on Cinema Reignited. When did you first realize that you wanted to be an artist? When I went to school. I was good at art. At school, I noticed that my artwork was, everybody liked it. Sometimes when we had classroom competition, I would lead the art. When we started to see movies in our little community hall, cars are quartered to get in. I started carving soapstone to sell, so I would go to the movies. That's where, where I started. And then being in school, I learned about photograph. And then in 1980, 81, I learned that Anybody could own a moving picture camera, so I needed one. I started dealing with the art gallery in Montreal. Uh, I remember flying down to Montreal somewhere in Sherbrooke Street, and I used to trade my carvings, and I wanted a video camera and TV. But in 1981, there was no TV in my community. So I bought the whole package, video camera, portal pack at that time, tripod, TV, so I could watch what I'm shooting, and a VCR. Let's talk about your movie. From Inuk point of view, touches on the introduction of new technologies to the Iglulit community. And in 1981, you acquired your first camera, two years before television was allowed in your community. What was your opinion of movies and television at the time? I thought they were godsend when I started watching movies. Just entertain yourself. Two hours, revenging stories, so similar to our culture stories. And we have these stories, too, that could be filmed. And I never knew when I started seeing movies back in the late 60s with a camera, and so many people work behind the camera. In 1984, Canuck worked for the Inuit Broadcasting Corporation. Then, in 1985, he learned about the Canada Council for the Arts Grants, and soon after, received the first grant awarded to an Indigenous or Inuit artist. How was the process of applying for that Canada Council grant? Norman Cohn, he helped me a lot. I never knew that when you propose an idea, it goes to a jury and you have to impress the jury to get the grant. We tried in 1985 and we got the grant. Basically, what we wanted to do was <laughs> we wanted to buy some gas and go out on the land and farm. And that money allowed us to do that. The grant was for $15,000 and Canuck would use it to tell a Glulik story, a story that was likely being experienced by many of Canada's Indigenous and Inuit people 
who had been forced to give up their traditions and culture. We wanted to tell the culture story of how our culture ran into a brick wall of Christianity, how Christianity banned our cultural storytelling, banned our drum dancing here in the Gulick. Because I was on the Anglican side, and this community was divided into Catholics on the other side and Anglicans on, on our side. And my cousins on the Catholic side, so we had a, a boundary where we start throwing rocks at each other, throwing stones at my cousins because of religion. So yeah, it was a learning experience for us. We started comparing the Christianity. We were told to turn away from our old way of life, become new. That's in the Bible. Basically, we throw away these curved clothes and put on fabrics to become new. And these fabrics, they're not good in the coats. Uh, we tried down, feathered down coats. It's even worse. Belt condensation inside. So we're going through all this. And we didn't know. We almost losing our culture. When I bought my camera and brought it back to Igulik, and I had a friend of mine in Ottawa taping cartoons for me so I could watch on TV. And every time I put on my TV, kids playing outside, because there was no TV in the small community, they would be glued to my window. And sometimes a whole lot of kids in my house watching TV with me. So I had this idea that if we're going to talk about our culture, this is what they want to watch. We might as well put our ideas to the box so we could also teach. Because in our culture, we watch and we learn. What really fascinating Native me about my culture was when I lay down to sleep in an igloo, counting the blocks in spiral, thinking whoever figured this out must have been genius. Uh, whoever figured out the kayak to travel on the water and throw your harpoon after your prey to get food. I thought that was genius, and I wanted to talk more about my culture because uh, we were being told to forget it. When I went into the film, it, exactly what it did, what I wanted to do. And the film shows people in daily life in Nikulik, and the narration explains why the story is important. Originally, the film didn't have subtitles. Who was your intended audience for the film originally, and how do you feel like it was received upon release? All my films uh, are made for our Inuit audience because if I make a mistake, they'll know. So all my films are intent first audience are my Igloolik people and Inuit in general. I mean, we had a hard time releasing because um, we would go to different networks like Knowledge Network or any other network. And they would tell us, we will show you our work if you dub it to English. I was so scared to do that. 
good thing that we found subtitles. We started using subtitles and keeping the language. And that works. And now that the film has been subtitled and can be understood by English-speaking people, does it make or does it take a different meaning? That's what we're trying to do all along. We're trying to get the message across. And now we can. Just a storytelling of what happened. You've gone on to direct some of the most celebrated and successful films ever made in Canada, including Adonarjuat, The Fast Runner, which won a Cam d'Or at Cannes and was voted the greatest Canadian film of all time in 2015 Toronto International Film Festival poll. How did, from a new point of view, influence or connect you to your other films? Um, when we did in a point of view, we're trying to tell stories of how we were going to do it. And in a point of view, it tells a lot of stories of wars hunters and community Eagle League. And then, and I wanted to do drama. 1988, I did a drama called Nunavut Series, but in our own style, but we don't have script. So we started experimenting drama improvising a lot till we get to Atanabdra where we needed a script. With script, you get more money. While we're trying to do this, Nunavut territory was going to be carved out of Canada in 1999. And our idea was to come up with our own movie. And that's how Atanabdra, uh, the fast runner, became. And what is, from an point of view's place in history of Indigenous cinema? This was the first time using an elder to do narration. Our late partner, who was our elder, did the narration. Paul Apek, our late partner, too, also did the camera work. And I was, I was doing the camera. From there, we never really stopped because we, we're now independent. We have to have projects each year to keep going for us to get paid. Zacharias, I want to thank you again for all of your wise and excellent answers. Thank you. We're now going to take a quick break for a message from our podcast partner, Telefilm Canada. Some people think going to the movies is about watching one, but they've forgotten the true magic of the cinema. At the movies, you can smell the memory of being a kid. Taste the wonder in losing yourself in a well-directed masterpiece. Touch the parts of your heart you forgot were still tender. And hear the contagious laughter of the crowd. See the lights dim and the energy shift. It's time to get back to it. Feel again at a theater near you. Until the late 1970s and the early 1980s, most films focused on Inuit people and culture were anthropological. Filmmakers from southern Canada or abroad objectifying their subjects to fit a narrative of their own. But Zacharias Canuck and the Asuma Collective were at the forefront of helping Inuit people establish their subjectivity on the screen. From a Nook point of view, may have been the first film to be funded by the Canada Council. <laughs> 
but it is now one of over 500 films featured in a new book by Mark David Turner called On Inuit Cinema. For Blandina McKick, who collaborated with Turner on his new book, the film was, and still is, influential on a personal level. Originally from Igloolik, Blandina is now in charge of the trademark program at the Inuit Art Foundation, a national organization that has sought to empower and support Inuit artists' self-expression and self-determination, while increasing the public's access to artists' work. I spoke with Blandina from Toronto to hear her perspective on how, from a Nook point of view, impacted Inuit communities, Inuit filmmaking, and why it still resonates with her on a deep level all these years after its release. Blandina, thank you for being with me today. How did Zacharias Knuck's from a point of view, opened the doors to Indigenous filmmakers in Canada. First of all, I would like to say that I don't profess to be a professional observer on my, uh, you know, my answers will be based on my point of view. Firstly, the use of the Inuktitut language. When you don't speak the language of a culture and you are in a position of power, you don't tend to believe that this person is as intelligent as you due to language barriers. As my aunt Madeline Ivalu, who was from All Night Video Productions, once said to me, you know, when the um, non-Inuit came to the north, we were always smiling because that's how we greeted people. It wasn't because we were stupid or just really smiley. It was the way we could communicate the fact that we... Um, are welcoming these people and she said but I think they thought we were no smarter than dogs so this film showcases the fact that even though you are speaking your own language you have an intellectual perspective that is unique to yourself for non-Inuit it opened eyes to the world yes we are Inuit yes we've been studied anthropologically and yes the majority of films were very much anthropological in nature, or they had to do with um, ice and snow and dog teams, and but never touched on the intellectual capacity. Traditions were based on oral history, oral storytelling, legends, songs. It was all memorized. So you had to have a huge capacity to retain memory. So I think... Um, Zakaryasik's Inuk point of view really opened the eyes of non-Inuit across Canada initially and then throughout the world, as it turned out. Blandina, you bring up a really interesting point about anthropology. I know when it comes to anthropological films in Indigenous communities, there is a really troubled history of constantly being surveilled and objectified. When, from an Inuk point of view, offers that subjectivity, what do you think Zacharias Canuck's perspective that he brought to the camera really opened up when it came to a subjective voice from Inuit communities? I think even the opening sequence in Inuk point of view, he opens with the visuals of what we call now Iglulik Point, but that was actually the real Iglulik. And so those houses that you see have been continuously inhabited for 4,000 years. 
So inoculture is not a new thing. It's not something that anthropologists discovered. We have always been at the top of the world for millennia. And so the pacing itself is very Inuit. There is no rushed scenes. However, it starts with a historical recitation of Iglulik itself. It addresses spirituality. It reflects the music, whether it be contemporary or traditional music. It addresses political changes. It addresses hunting rights. It addresses environmental concerns. And I think one of the poignant um, scenes is all these children um, in Halloween costumes. And the narrator is saying, well, all these holidays, they're not Inuit holidays, but they're Canadian holidays, yet we have taken them to be and adapted them for us trying to be part of the greater Canadian culture. However, uh, you must not think these are traditional Inuit values, right? Inuit ilukusinga, sarao simaduktuk, asizuk simaninga, kadlunan pikusingin ni, kamadja harwe kadlunan ilukusinga. And then he also addresses the animal rights activists, how much harm they have done to Inuit. I wish I could explain to those people the harm that they're doing with their grievances. So this was a voice that we knew, but to have it told to a non-Inuk audience, I think just really resonated with Inuit. How was the film received by Inuit communities in 1985? Foremost, so much pride. It was an acknowledgement that we do count as a society, that we our voices count, that we can tell our own stories in our own way without it being imposed or the narrative being imposed upon us. But this is who we are. This is what our morals are, this is what our values are, I could see myself reflected. And for me, on a very personal level, obviously, I knew all these people. I knew how majestic they were. I knew how intellectual they were. I knew the songs, how the songs themselves, which are hundreds of years old, that are being used as the, the background audio. You can only just an amazing sense of pride in culture, in self, in society, for people that have been subjugated for so long, if I might use that word, just sheer pride and happiness, you know, and love, all these really powerful emotions that you would not get from an anthropological film, for example, or from a film saying, this is how you build an igloo. This is how we used to live. No, it's because those are very patronizing. Took away that patronizing voice, the almighty narrator, and it humanized us. And that's the most important thing, the humanity of the film. And we have to acknowledge in 1985, the film team received the first Canada Council grant awarded to an Indigenous artist. Since then, how accessible are such grants to Indigenous artists and filmmakers? 
Well, there are a lot more opportunities today. And at one point, I actually sat on a Canada Council jury for Northern artists, not necessarily Indigenous, but artists working from the North. The Canada Council tried at times to be inclusive, but to write a grant in the language, in the bureaucratic language, you know, for an individual artist or even a collective was very difficult. You had to meet the parameters. You had to meet goals that are outlined. You had to, if you're making a film, you have to have a director, you have to have a script writer, you have to have this and that. But whereas in these, uh, Isma, for example, they weren't designating these titles upon people because it was a collective that they were working. Maybe one day I will help write the script. Maybe one day I will help film or direct. So you had to write it in the language that was bureaucratic and onerous. I'm glad to see today that some of those barriers have been um, set aside. But again, to a small degree, I think it's still easier for established artists. It's much harder for non-recognized voices still. And also, uh, you must remember in the Arctic, uh, there are no big studios. There are access to um, tools, for example, whether that tool be a camera, whether that tool be a studio, a work, a place to work, a place to rehearse. These places often don't exist. So I think there still has to be a reimagining of how, say, a studio space, unlike Southern Canada, what is the outside world a studio place? Can I put that as my office? You know, little things that you have to work around and you have to work to the language. And if you don't have those language skills, English, I mean, you I don't think you can still write a grant proposal in Inuktitut, as far as I'm, I'm aware. Despite some of the challenges that face Inuit filmmakers, Blandina shared how the language of Inuktitut has helped give Inuit filmmakers a unique voice that resonates with their intended audiences. With Inuktitut, and I think uh, in Canada, we're, as Inuit, we're very lucky because our language is spoken from Arctic Siberia Arctic, Alaska, all the top of Canada and to Greenland. It's one language. So you have a ready audience is already understanding this one language. And so for, again, speaking from an Inuk and Inuktitut perspective, we are using our voice. We are using our land. We are using the way we view the world to tell whether it a story, whether it be fictional or traditional or teaching skills and values. So this was grasped by other Inuit. My voice matters. And there's a certain way they do things, these large television corporations. It's a set format. What if we did not use that format? What if we chose a format that is our worldview? It doesn't have to be point of view of democracy, a point of view of some other political system or a religious system, but it can also be a universal voice because at the base, we are all human beings. And I think once you realize I might not speak your language, I might not view 
things the same way, but I still have to find ways to amuse myself. I have to find ways to feed myself. These are all universal human needs. So I think looking at that way, I think that's very influential. Many of the issues that are brought up in the film are a result of the Canadian government's forced settlement program that required families to bring their kids into communities like Iglulik to attend school. How is the aftermath of this program still influencing Indigenous filmmakers? Once you have harnessed a people whose way of life was migration, was way of life in tune with nature itself, we were not an agricultural society, so the seasons dictated where you lived. The seasons dictated what you ate. The seasons dictated everything. And once you take that away, and once you have corralled a people into a invented society, you have damaged a very large part of that culture. You're forcing them into a house. You're forcing them into a school. You're forcing them into organized religion, political systems. And this takes away freedom. The loss of freedom to me is, I think, a huge loss. The freedom of expression, the freedom to roam. And so I think in, especially perhaps, Isuma films, you see this, the freedom, say, shown by the sheer joy of riding a dog team, the sheer joy of stalking a seal. This you cannot do when you're in a wooden house in a community. So it captivated indigenous filmmakers to say, or do and make films that are not limited by four walls. As more residential schools are discovered by the public and more stories are heard, how does Zacharias Canuck's From an Inuk point of view become even more relevant to audiences today? I will speak from personal experience. Uh, when I was five years old, I was sent away to residential school. And I was actually listening to the Pope in Iqaluit in July. Um, but I don't think people realize what a cruel, cruel, cruel system that was. I did not speak any English. I had never eaten rotten food before. I had never had to have a, a card where I had to say how I had behaved that day to this person whom I didn't even realize was a human being because all I could see was the face and the hands. They did not seem to have a body. The psychological impact of even the clothing of the clergy is one tiny indication of how alien and foreign and all-powerful and to subjugate children to terrible food, to terrible conditions, to horrible abuse, the sexual abuse. This is enough to inflict damage on any society, but especially a society that was 
egalitarian. Yes, we had leaders, but it was all consensual. You arrived at decisions as a group. You did not have a dictator. You did not have the voice of God telling you, well, you have to say your sins every Saturday and that way you will be cleansed. I mean, what kind of belief system is this? How incredibly foreign that was. And as we see these children's bodies being discovered, as we see this uh, residential school, the trauma, the enormous trauma that is faced not only by us, our children, but I think Canada as a whole suffered from this system that subjugated a people according to one particular set of beliefs. And how traumatizing is that just as Canadians? And it's a shameful past, but we have to move forward. We are a culture that evolves. We are not stuck in one place. So as we start to try to heal ourselves as a people, heal our self as indigenous groups, heal ourselves as a society. I think Sakaryasik's Inuk point of view has so much knowledge and so much power to teach us what's important and to have, you know, these voice continue to be heard, even though the elders that spoke on it have passed, their voices live on today. So I think It's by listening to each other and listening to films such as this that are relevant to our population today. I couldn't say it better myself. How does Indigenous film and filmmaking have the potential to help many of the issues facing Indigenous communities today? Well, I would think as loss of culture, when you lose everything, you have lost your pride you have lost your space. This creates social anxiety. It creates tremendous social upheaval. It destroys the society. It's very, very destructive. And you can see that in the rates of suicide, in the rates of poverty. The population is very young. There are children raising children. Looking at... Pride, looking at success stories, looking at um, role models. You know, you don't have to live this way. You don't have to abuse drugs. You don't have to kill yourself because you have no hope. There is hope. And perhaps that's what these children, these young people, perhaps some of them see this hope when they view films with um, issues that are addressing perhaps what they're feeling, what they're facing and what their lives are. Once again, this has been so informative, cleansing and such a pleasure to talk to you, Blandina. I asked both Zacharias and Blandina why today's film lovers should see from a Nook point of view as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited program. That's a hard question to answer, but we wanted a place. Yeah, we have interesting stories that we haven't told yet, but you know, to get in the system, to get a slice of the pie, we know we could do it. 
Glendina found it easier to find reasons she thinks film lovers should see from a Nook point of view. Well, first of all, it's a great film. (laughs) If you look at it from a purely technical perspective, the way they're using movement, the way they're using music, the way the narration is paced, that the way the film is paced, even if you did not speak Inuktitut and even watched without subtitles, you would still be drawn into the visuals. It makes you feel, wow, I wonder what they're going to do next. I wonder why are these uh, Inuit wearing Halloween costumes? What is this community dance? I mean, is that how they dance? Is that traditional? And they're saying, no, it's not traditional, but this is what we have adopted. So even from a curiosity perspective, I think it's very enthralling. It's engaging and it's educational. As Canada struggles to make sense of the harm caused to Inuit and Indigenous people over the last century, the artwork of its people is an entry point for many of us trying to better understand. A chance to listen and hear the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of those that have had to live through settlement programs and residential schools. For too long, the stories that were being told were not written by the people that had lived them. This entry point exists because of the imagination of Inuit and Indigenous filmmakers and artists like Zacharias Canuck, who were willing to take the resources they had and make films their way, constantly experimenting and learning to make their vision a reality. Zacharias believed that he could do it, and that belief started from a Nook point of view. And in the years since, He's directed more than 20 films and won a Camera d'Or at Cannes, one of the most prestigious film awards in the world. And he isn't stopping. He has more stories to tell. From a Nook point of view has been digitized as part of the Canadian Cinema Reignited program, granting us the privilege to watch and learn from a film that was groundbreaking in more ways than one. In my opinion, this film is a true sight of taking back the camera, and defining oneself on the screen. The short doc is a provocative self-portrait of a town, a people, a culture, celebrating oneself in the face of ongoing change. From a Nook point of view, it's currently available to stream online on Hot Docs at Home until December 29, 2022. Please visit the link in the show notes to watch the film and to learn more. Thanks again to Zacharias Canuck and Blandina McKick for joining me on this episode. Thank you for listening to Cinema Reignited. I hope you learned something new today about the Canadian film landscape and our country's cultural identity. If you found this episode interesting, please share it with your network and even tag us at the CDN Academy and at Sister Samah. Of course, rate and review the podcast to help us connect with other Canadian film lovers. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode, and hopefully we'll see you next time.